Welcome to Good Life Project, where we take you behind the scenes for in-depth, candid conversations with artists, entrepreneurs, makers, and world shakers. Here's your host, Jonathan Fields. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Fields with another episode of Good Life Project. This is a very special episode. You may notice I'm kind of wearing something a little bit different, and we'll we'll explain why that is a little bit later in this conversation. Um, this episode also has a very special guest, an unusual guest. Today, our guest is me. <laughs> How am I going to interview myself? Well, it turns out I'm not going to. I'm hanging out today with my very good buddy, Christopher Carter. Good to be hanging out with you. Amazing to be here. And uh, I asked him to actually come over and uh, turn the tables on me. We've had a ton of requests over the last two and a half years of doing this to uh, to do that for uh, somebody to come in and interview me. And, and, uh, and I was kind of waited and hesitated. And there is a very special reason that we're doing this today that uh, that we'll we'll get into. So so. Everyone should stay tuned and listen um, and watch uh, as this whole thing unfolds. So I am now going to do a very uncomfortable thing and turn it over to you. <laughs> Amazing. So which one of us gets to say awesome to, awesome to be hanging out with you today? Uh, you can do that if you want. All right, because I, I truly mean it. As a, as a huge fan of the show since the very beginning, it's really a trip to be interviewing, here, interviewing you here today. So, so let's, before we get into kind of the journey of Good Life Project itself, you know, we'll start a little bit back before that. But, you know, just as I, as I prepare to do this, um, what have you learned from interviewing hundreds of amazingly inspiring people over the last two years? Like, what did you learn about interviewing? Hmm. Wow, that's a big question. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, this started out as a passion project largely for me. And the fact that it's grown into what it has is kind of, it's humbling. It's surprising. It's amazing. It's a, it's a blessing. Um, and, uh, and I, along the way, I, I started out just kind of wanting to be able to sit down with really cool people who knew a lot and pick their brains. Like I was looking for teachers. And so I, I had this genuine sense of curiosity with the people who I was inviting in from the very beginning. So I, I never viewed any of these as interviews. It was always to me a conversation. It was like, Hey, listen, I bumped into somebody at a dinner party they, they do something that I'm kind of fascinated by. I learn more, you know, like they're living a life that I'm, you know, like I want to know about how, how, how are they doing this? So let's have a conversation rather than let me just grill you with a series of questions. And I think one of the, um, one kind of the magic about the experience has been that, um, it's really a series of conversations, mm-hmm. you know? So if I'm jamming with Brene Brown and we both, you know, totally geek out on one particular topic mm-hmm. I'm not sitting here interviewing her and waiting for like her to finish so I can ask the next question we're just geeking out on something so I'm going to share my ideas she's going to share her sure. ideas and um, it's kind of funny actually is that for the most part people have tended to respond really well to that and every once in a while we'll get a, a comment about the show saying I wish the interview would just shut up already <laughs> wow <laughs> nice and let the guests talk which is kind of funny because I also think that I try and be super deferential and respectful to everybody who has been a guest and really just allow them to say everything that's on their mind and create the space for them to let that happen so I think for me like one of the big things is really realizing to go into it as a conversation and not an interview yeah and and probably the single biggest thing happens before this conversation ever happens which is 
have a genuine interest in the person that you're sitting across oh, the sure. table from. Because if you don't, then you're just sitting here like waiting for it to be done. But if you do, then it's organic. And you know, so two and a half years, nothing's ever scripted. Right. You know, and we'll go, we've had times where we've gone close to two hours. We've had to split it into two episodes mm-hmm. just because we're jamming. Like we start going down rabbit holes and it's fascinating. The stories come out are amazing. So, you know, number one, really find people you're genuinely interested in learning about mm-hmm. and um, treat it more as a conversation. But then once actually I start to realize how much I was liking this, um, then I start to actually say, well, I want to get better at this. I, I want to actually treat this as a craft. Mm-hmm. So I start thinking to myself, well, who are the exemplars? Who are the people out there right. doing things yeah, like this? Yeah, and who are those really people admire. for you? Yeah. You know, and it crosses a lot of different things. You know, it, if you look on TV, probably people like Charlie Rose, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's a tremendous interviewer. Barbara Walters is a tremendous interviewer. Like, different styles. Mm-hmm. But just listening to the questions that they ask. Um mm-hmm. Who's the guy from inside the actor's studio? Uh, blanking on his not name. Will Ferrell, no, the real guy. <laughs> but um, and then you know what's really interesting is on um, podcasting is exploding now. Right. You know, and we launched the podcast version of this a year ago, and uh, there the, there are some really astonishing people on just pure audio who I actually really aspire to to learn from. You know, people like Krista Tippett who produces a show called On Being. Mm-hmm. Um, on on the public radio side of things, uh, you know, there's uh, Terry Gross, great interviewer, yeah. um, and locals in New York, like WNYC is our local uh, public radio station. Um, so people like Leonard Lopate or um, Brian Schaefer and guys like that. But it's really just, I'm, I'm learning more and more probably from the radio side and the podcasting side these days because when you don't have video as part of the process and it's just audio, mm-hmm. the quality of your questions really have to be a lot better. Yeah. You know, yep. because there's nothing else to distract sure. <laughs> from just what's being said. Well, and I think the common thread with all those people you mentioned is that the listener or the viewer feels like they're along for the ride. Yeah. You know, you're kind of... And that's the comment that we get all the time. Yeah. You know, people are always like, I feel like I'm just kind of sitting in the room with you guys exactly. and you're just having fun and riffing and like, you know, going to town on a topic. Yes. I don't know how many episodes I've sat through with my wife nearby and she said, are you done hanging out with your friends now? (laughs) Yes. Um, So that's great. It it helps me uh, uh, get situated for this because I have so many questions to get through with you Mm -hmm. and gosh, where to begin. But why don't we, why don't we start by going back to when you started Good Life Project? I know you have a a really interesting backstory that, that obviously prepared you to start uh, the project itself, but what was the real curiosity that you're trying to satisfy behind examining, you know, this broad, giant, deep topic of how to live a good life. Yeah, and, and yeah, it, it is very personal um, mm-hmm. because <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, somewhat of a seeker. Mm-hmm. I'm out there, I'm constantly trying to figure out what are the ingredients, you know, how do I live my time on the earth in, in a really powerful way? And honestly, probably um, that exploration started to get a lot deeper after 9-11. You know, I was... Mm-hmm. A long-time New Yorker. I grew up just outside of New York. I've been in the city since '89, um, so this is my home. And you know, 9/11 was a really powerful, traumatic, transformative time for anyone who lived in New York City. It was, it was deeply painful and jarring for everyone outside of the city, but it was different inside the city. Mm-hmm. Not to diminish in any way the experience of anyone who wasn't in here. It's just it was different. Um, you know the. You lived in a place that was that was functionally and literally a, a, a morgue and a funeral. You know, like there there was an island that was, you know, that's what it was. 
and uh and it made you it just really connected me at least especially because there are people that i know who passed Mm -hmm. um and it, it connected me with the um the importance of uh of impermanence and owning the fact that what we have here like nobody planned to go to the towers that morning and not come home mm-hmm. you know it, it wasn't it just but it happened you know and that's an extreme example but still stuff like that happens on a smaller scale every day um and so yeah, i really just started looking at like whatever time i've got i don't know how long that is how do i make the best of it how do i wake up in the morning and then like spend the day in a way where when I close my eyes, when I go to bed at night, um, I feel whole. I feel like I, I'm mm. good. Yeah. Like, you know, like God willing, this won't be the last time I close my eyes at night. But if mm. I did, I would have done what I'm here to do mm-hmm. um, with who I'm here to do it with. And I don't know if I'm there yet. I wouldn't, you know, I don't hold myself out as some massive role model on that. Um, but, but it started this quest. I wanted to learn, mm-hmm. you know, I got really curious um and uh and and at, simultaneously i was opening a business that was steeped in eastern philosophy mm-hmm. so that that kind of traveled me down that road also where the exploration of impermanence is just a regular thing right you know it's not as like taboo as it is in western cultures like, don't think about death don't think about this stuff no. mm-hmm. it's just like well, it's yeah i mean you know people meditate on death and impermanence all the time yeah because, and, and you know, we've got that fame, now famous line from Steve Jobs in his Stanford commencement speech where he said, you know, like, death is life's you know, like, greatest invention because it reminds you mm-hmm. constantly, you know, that you're here, live with purpose. It should create urgency. With yeah. People. Yeah. You know, go do good things. So that, that's that been brewing, you know, for a while now, but a couple of years ago, I, I got even more curious about it and... uh and actually, um, the whole thing kind of started because I re- had released an annual report, which turned into a, just a look back. It was the end year. of end of 2011, right? Annual yeah, report. right. So, so we actually came out with the annual report in January of 2012, and it looked back on 2011, and it started as a blog post, and then turned into a 40-page annual report. Mm-hmm. And um, and in it, I started to think about, well, how do I actually, how do I build things? How do I build my career? How do I build businesses and companies that I built? How what's my approach? You know, like what's the set of ethics or values? Mm-hmm. And these ten things that I ended up calling my ten commandments of business kind of channeled through me, and uh, I threw them out into the world, and the response kind of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And and I teased at the end of that this thing called Good Life Project. I had no idea what it was really going to be. I was like, ah, it'll be a vehicle for me to do something so, cool. So at the time, it was just maybe a domain name. That yeah, you yeah pretty much, <laughs> <laughs> and a logo. But I think that logo's now been changed like so, nine. So times this is this, this is December, and then you launched the the project really. In February, yeah. Right? So, so what was interesting is, um, and most people don't realize this is, uh, you know, the the venture itself from a business venture side, they're actually it's education, media, and community, and um, most people are aware of the media. And this is what we're doing yeah. right here, but the education side of the brand, which is also where we generate revenue mm-hmm. and fund the media because it costs money to produce at this level. Um, that actually started about three months before the media, and and mm-hmm. part of it was. Um, because I was able to leverage my existing brand to actually create a training experience to bring people into it, which you were a participant in. amazing program. And, um, and, and it was also with the deliberate intention of, I'd looked at the media and I wanted to create something really extraordinary. I want to go find these amazing people around the world and sit down with them and have conversations right. and share it. But I wanted to do it at a level of production mm-hmm. that was really extraordinary. 
you know, I didn't want to just drop like you know split screen online Skype so with, so with the like, earbuds in. And, yeah, yeah, so I wanted to really I wanted to raise the bar, and I kind of decided after the response to the annual report, which is really well designed and really well received, right. that um that I was like, you know, I'm 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 not here to do ordinary. Mm-hmm. So anything I do from that moment forward really had to be at a different level. So I was like, all right, well, it's going to cost me serious money to produce at this level. So I started that side of the brand first mm-hmm. to generate the revenue to then turn around and then be able to pay to produce the media at the level that I felt that way and that you know I wanted to represent um, the brand what I was building yeah so so to take a couple steps back from there you know as I as I kind of try to create the continuity between your major projects so there was Career Renegade around 2007 2008 right. Mm. Uh, 2009, actually. Began. 2009? Yeah, January 2009. All right, so then uh, Uncertainty, 2011. Yep. And then Good Life Project, uh, really the beginning of 2012, as yep. it took shape and got built. It's kind of a jagged line between those things. Huh. And as I as I try to find the continuity piece, I know you, you and I talk all the time offline about uh, pattern recognition, yep. and that's kind of your killer app, right? right? We'll get into that in a minute, too. But as I started to piece those things together and I look at your own journey, I look at Career Renegade as teaching people how to overcome the major hurdle of escaping, uh, you know, the, the scripted life, the scripted career. And then uncertainty is how to navigate the inevitable uncertainty that comes from all that. Mm. And then Good Life Project is kind of this um, beautiful arrival point of um, f- helping people figure out how to uh, find and maintain this idea of the good life. And um, so I guess my, my major question is, is, as you look back on that kind of journey, like where were you in 2012 when this was starting as far as, you know, um, did you know that this was going to become the center point of your work over the no, next few years? not at all. <laughs> I really, this was a project, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a lifetime entrepreneur with a, a short stint in the law um, as an aberration. <laughs> Um, so I've always had, you know, like various projects moving along and I was moving to the online world. I was writing books, I was speaking and, uh, I had a couple different projects that were kind of rolling and, and, and have some have rolled out, you know, since then also. And I, and I continue to have other projects, but this really took a role of eminency or preeminence in, in sort of my landscape of things that I was doing, um, in response to, to people, mm-hmm. um, to, to, well, on, on the one hand, there seemed to be this huge need for, um, uh, how do I say it, uh, science-backed, uh, sort of like a science, a more science-backed, less metaf- metaphysical approach to um, developing the person, self-knowledge, self-inquiry, self-mastery, mm-hmm. and um, and how to apply that to the, the process of building something, whether it's a career, you know, you being an entrepreneur within an organization or building your own venture right. or a cause. And, um, and I saw a lot of great stuff out there, but nothing that I really resonated with. So as I have always done, I see gaps. I see patterns and gaps. I said, okay, um, if it's not there, then let me see. Let me create it and see if people want it. And mm-hmm. people did. And um, and so I created more, and people wanted more. <laughs> and it just so it started to take more and more and more. And I started to realize, huh, you know, you, you started out as a as an experiment. It's a project. Yep. You know, and the project, you gather data, and the data either validates or invalidates what you, your assumptions in the beginning. 
And what's interesting is I really didn't make any assumptions in the beginning. This was just like, if it works, cool. If it just a blank, blank canvas. Yeah. You know, I'm going to keep on exploring and having conversations, but maybe it's not, you know, a major project or a, a real venture, you know, a viable venture, but it, but it was. That's what's, that's what's interesting to work closely with you on a lot of the Good Life Project material now is that there's a certain, you maintain almost a maddening level of fluidity <laughs> as, as, the, as the data gets gathered. As my team tells me. Yeah, like, yeah. As, as it lock takes it down, shape. man. Like, lock it down. People are like, what's the launch going to look like next week? Well, we'll find out what the weather looks like. But um, I always always say about you that um, the world kind of benefits and is impacted by your very clear OCD around certain topics, Mm. you know? So it was like career renegade, escaping the the career, um, you know, uncertainty, and then um, how to live a good life. It's it's really, you leave no stone unturned, but there's this really interesting balance with you between the science part and the art. And that's what I wanted to talk about is, that, is finding that balancing point because yeah. you are obsessed about gathering data and frameworks and you know continuity and what are the patterns. But then there's this other really beautiful aesthetic to it where it is an open canvas and it kind of paints itself and you, you just hold space. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's been a really common theme and I am very much that oddball. Um, you know, I've, I've, I, maybe I'm a lefty, but I'm also fairly ambidextrous. You know, I was... Mm-hmm. Uh, painter self-taught painter as a kid you know i painted album covers back when album covers were really awesome on mm-hmm. the backs of jean jackets to make my walking around money in high school what was your favorite album cover you painted on your on one of your jean jackets molly yeah. hatchet flirting with yes disaster. i was hoping you'd say molly hatchet and you did that's crazy that's solid art. <laughs> yeah. crazy, crazy art and then um and the other was like actually like a little album cover sitting up there in the corner boston it's sort of like epic oh, nice. spaceship album Yep. Um, a lot of Grateful Dead, and then um, the one that I wore was actually uh, the um, I did this in oils, which I don't recommend on a uh, <laughs> jacket you can wear around. Was um, when U two came out with War, and it was just a black and white photo of uh, a young boy, his face, and wow. there was just something really sort of um, powerful about that. So I did this like photorealistic painting of uh, that image on there that people would stop me all the time trying to figure out like did I somehow put in a photo on there or was it painted and it was um, yeah there was just something about that I would, I would steal away for like days and days and days in the corner of the basement just painting so I think you mentioned that in uncertainty because when I started reading that book I got sucked into the free first chapter and the storytelling right. you know like the which is the other side of my brain right? yeah yeah well like the certainty anchors right. and uh, the crux moves and all that really cool imagery and then but but as that's going on you're like who the hell is the guy who's the guy writing it right. you know but then you start you you pivot into art and music and DJing and all these like seemingly disparate talents and skills that by the end of the book you're realizing you clearly leverage on a almost daily basis yeah and, and what's increasingly interesting to me and and um is that uh i've kept the real artist in me sort of like in second place for a number mm. of years now and um i'm making very deliberate shifts now and everything that i do to actually elevate that to the extent where i'm you know, like now in the process of moving my position within good life project adventure more from uh chief executive officer to cco to chief creative officer um yeah, where I get to do a lot more art and a lot more design and, and language. I look at, at crafting language as a real art form. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, you know, and I think I really got this. I probably got it earlier than I think because in college I would always take classes that required papers instead of tests because I could always mm-hmm. do really well on right. those. Yeah, I, I've, I've kind of become really obsessed with the art form, the craft of language, of words, of writing. 
So when I write something, you know, I I look at it and I really it it matters the cadence, the rhythm, the tone, the timing, the and and I think I actually really got lit up in this as um as a first year uh, law student when one of our professors took uh, an opinion that was written by Justice Benjamin Cardozo and broke it down and showed how these little turns of phrases and nuance were so powerful in creating um, visual imagery um, and changing the way the story is being told. I was like, huh. And then I would start to read people like Hemingway, you know, The Old Man and the Sea, and where there, there was just this fierce commitment to um, to brevity and efficiency in language and and you know his classic six word story where like I don't, who knows if this legend was true or not but there's you know the fable goes that he was sitting around a table with a bunch of friends and uh, and and a challenge was issued to to him to create a full story with all the emotions and everything a beginning a middle and an end in six words and he won the bet and the story was I, I may get it slightly wrong um, the six words were um, for sale baby shoes never worn powerful that's a full story right mm-hmm. there um so i i've become kind of obsessed with the craft the art side of language and then i i'm, I'm also visually obsessed which you know because um i'm maniacal about visual design and display Fonts so, and so when i write a blog yeah. post i'm looking at the way that the the sentences um arc down the right side mm-hmm. of the margin and i'll adjust things <laughs> Wow. To make the... Which is probably pretty maddening sometimes. It can be, especially in the online world when everything is <laughs> yeah. fluid and dynamic right. and like everything is now responsive. So it makes it a little bit harder to design, which has been an interesting challenge for me too. But increasingly, yeah, I, I have always danced with this really uh, maybe unusual balance between um, an artist and somebody who just loves transcendent experiences and awe mm-hmm. and, um, and a quant. You know, who like I, I'll geek out on data at the same time, and um, but when I really think about it, you know, if I the, the the bigger pull for me is the side of the artist. So, so the art guides the science versus the other way around. Yeah, you say? I think in the end, I'll always default to, to art. In fact, I have left countless um, amounts of money on the table in the name of preserving art. Mm-hmm. You know, I I'll I'll only take that to a certain level. But <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's something that's a guiding ethic for me. Sure. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. 
Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. So let's let's talk about what you started learning from interviewing all these people because as somebody who's also obsessed with pattern recognition, I look down the you know the headlines you write to get people to watch the videos, mm. you know, and to, to pique their curiosity and stuff. And almost every little headline's its own little hero's journey. Mm. But I and I and I know that you're a huge fan of the work of Joseph Campbell and Nancy Duarte, Hero's Journey. So um, the one clear pattern that emerged for me just kind of revisiting all the episodes over the past couple of weeks has been that all those people pretty much have laid out their hero's journey to some degree. Yeah. And, and I've become in, increasingly focused on uh, using that as an overlay for the conversations, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. And it wasn't deliberate in the beginning, but I noticed that actually the, the, the conversations that where people responded the most powerfully were the ones where the journey unfolded in a pretty similar, you know, following that sort of like hero's journey arc. What's interesting is that um, I, I had always chosen people who were, had come full circle on the hero's journey. Yes. And then had a conversation after they returned with the elixir and they were in a position to now share. What to kind of to be a mentor for all of your listeners. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting is um, we haven't released them yet, but they'll be out pretty soon. I've actually started to move away from that a bit because um, my thought was in the beginning, you know, like why would I want to have conversations with people who are in the thick and the weeds? Um, because what you know, the whole goal is for me to learn mm-hmm. and for other people listening and watching to learn. And um, and if they're in the middle of it with all of us, where's the learning? And my 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 thing has really changed on that actually. Um, and there is a huge uh, benefit in sharing people uh, really human stories of people who are who are in it. Um, mm-hmm. And part of the benefit is. To see that they're they're starting to see the light, they're starting the journey home. They're finding peace yeah. of the elixir. They're not there yet, but that then the people there's so many more people out in life every day who are in that part of the journey than who have figured things out and have come home. That simply sharing stories of people who are doing okay in that space mm-hmm. lets everybody else know you're not alone. Yeah, and there's so, so much power in that. It's because it's kind of like. Does the does the listener more resonate and respond with the the harder part of their hero's journey or the part of returning with the elixir? Because a lot of times, people roll their eyes and say, "Oh, not another guru on marketing, or not another person who's found out how to make a million dollars on their blog or something." But so, so my question in there was, is the in in your experience doing all these interviews, is the hero's journey a naturally occurring phenomenon, or is it a convenient packaging for a lot of these experts? Yeah, I think it's a pretty naturally occurring phenomenon. You yeah. know, the mythology, the, the reason our brains crave that 
that arc in every story, every movie, every book that we read is because it's, I, I think like Joseph Campbell, it's kind of wired into us. Yeah. Um, and it's our own journeys. Um, very often we don't take them ourselves, um, mm-hmm. but we kind of want to, and that's what we, we're always aspiring mm-hmm. to that role. Um, so, and, and I think the thing that people are really drawn to are the people who go out and, and do it. Um, right. Because so many of us don't. And, uh, I, I think I think a lot of true teachers want to take the example of if I can do this, so can you. Here's where I started, just so you know, we're all humans here. Right. And um, just this morning, my aunt reminded me, who's very into um, shamans and healers and stories and all that stuff. She said she she reminded me of the the Native American belief about we we start off as like the little field mouse scurrying, mm-hmm. scurrying, and then we become the wise bear or, or the bear, the slightly more dealing with things bear, and then it moves over, but. Um, and then you end at the white buffalo, which is kind of the enlightenment stage. So this this is a naturally occurring thing across all different types of philosophies and teachings. I just think it's it's interesting that the wide arc, uh, the diverse mix of people you found to yeah. prove this out. Yeah, and it, and that was very deliberate. I mean, I didn't want this to be a show about you know small entrepreneurs and business people. They're they're certainly part of the mix, mm-hmm. but so are illustrators. So are you know like artists. So are social psychologists. So mm-hmm. are legendary designers, musicians. You know, like uh, I mean, we we've art from you know like guys like uh, Dan Ariely, who's you know like an award winning uh, behavioral economist, to Tommy Baylor, um, who wrote the song "She's Out of My Life" and he from sang Michael it. Jackson, and, he and sang. then sang it on yeah. the episode. It was almost had me crying. Um, you know, to it's just it's an and it was it's very intentional because um, I I kind of want to show that across every slice of humanity, you know that the that there's possibility. Mm-hmm. And um, what's what's kind of what became apparent to me also just earlier this year was that um, so I, I want to say it was either the end of last year or the beginning of this year I got an email from somebody um, and uh, and he was a broadcast editor and and he was like hey listen um, I'd love to help you out if you ever need anything I'm like no we're good we're good recovered and uh, a couple months later he emails me again he's like hey listen at the end of your conversation with Milton Glazer. Um, Glazer asks you, like, you know, like, how do people answer that question? You know, like, what's your definition of a, of a good life? And you said you were always surprised that there wasn't a ton of duplication in the answers. So he said, so I went and I, I looked at all the past episodes and edited them into a mashup, and here it is. And presented me this format video, which was gorgeous, and almost had me and my wife in tears, like, watching this. And, um, and the reason I was so emotional was because it was the first time where I actually looked back, and I was like, oh, holy crap, this, <laughs> this is bigger. Than mm-hmm. I ever really realized it was from the inside looking out. You know, this is this is a body of work, which will matter to somebody, mm-hmm. and maybe bigger than that, it's a body of proof. It's yeah. a body of evidence that what so many people assume to be impossible, beyond their means, good for other people who are not them, mm-hmm. um, actually is within their reach. And because and and that was part of what I was doing was I wanted a broad enough swath of humanity, so that anybody could look at this body of work and pick out you know like a chunk of people who they saw themselves in, right. And that was I mean once I started to realize that I was like huh I, I had no idea that's really what this was was about. Yeah, and I know and that's a beautiful piece that's on the front of the site right now, right? Yeah, yeah. We'll probably take it down fairly soon, but yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I know in the 
when you have the learning curriculum part of Good Life Project, mm-hmm. you've created frameworks to help guide people into or through the process of creating their own good life. Um, some stuff that admittedly worked miracles on me and my journey. What? Um, just cover quickly the three buckets yeah. uh, that you identified as a result of doing all these interviews. Yeah. So it was really again that pattern recognition thing, like looking back over a hundred plus episodes. You know, like what are the what are the commonalities? What are the big patterns? And can I sort of lump things into categories? And they, and they start to sort of turn into these three major buckets that need to be, I'll call it perpetually filled um, yeah. for you for anyone to really rise and, and and those buckets are vitality connection and contribution what i mean by that is vitality is you know your ability to um to feel physically well emotionally well um a mindset well like well slept pain free um disease free and 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 be vital and alive you know connection is connection with self source mm-hmm. uh, nature others friends family and contribution is really, you know, what is the work that you bring to when you invest your energy, when you wake up in the morning and you spend the better part of the day, what are you contributing to the world and how? And how does that matter to the world and how does it matter to you? And, um, yeah, when, when you when you start to really look at that and say, okay, I need to constantly be filling all three of these buckets because the most full bucket will always be limited by the, the height of the least full bucket. Mm-hmm. Um it changes the way you do things. It also gives you more permission to go and if you're banging your head against the wall at work and you, you know, flatlined in your career, very often the answer is not trying to fill that bucket any higher. It's the fact that your vitality and connection buckets are empty. You need to actually pull back and and double down on, on the self-care side of things, which is so counterintuitive to most people. Right. But when you do that, the contribution bucket just unlocks and starts filling itself so again. So it's not trying to fix the broken job or career. It's trying to fix yourself and your connection with yeah. other people, and the, the career will fix yeah. itself. And, and sort of the precursor to that is uh, is a fairly intensive um, process of self-inquiry, mm-hmm. you know, which is because you can't figure out what you want and how to invest your energies and all these different things unless you actually spend a little bit of time getting to know yourself. Right. And nobody does that. Nobody teaches that beyond a, sort of a a variety of woo-woo type experiences, which if that worked for you, that's awesome. That's mm-hmm. just not my bent. Um, although increasingly as I get older, I'm, I'm more and more open to things I can't explain with any type of science. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, so it, it's really this process of deliberate self-inquiry that's at the, that's the heartbeat of everything else. And I, I, n- nobody does that. Right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. We don't learn that in school. Nobody cares to ask. You know, we have moments of tripping over self-knowledge, but acquiring quick ruthless self-knowledge it's a pretty hardcore process having gone through it with you you know uh, we wonder why people are in the thrash or in tears for a good you know few weeks somewhere in the program Um, but that that process results in you know so we sign up for the program thinking we want entrepreneurial greatness or whatever that looks like or fix that contribution bucket for me but what we ultimately get out of it in so many cases is this what you, what you refer to a lot is alignment mm. and alignment was another common thread that I saw in all the guests yeah. you know alignment with there's no toggle between who they are and what they do their work speaks for their self, itself because their work is them and vice yeah. versa so, sometimes um, on a level that's painful I mean <laughs> yeah yeah because I, sometimes yeah sometimes you can really align it in a way where the world stands up and says we're going to pay you for that go live a great life and here's a ton of money yeah um other times it takes a a lot more time there's an interesting thing about this notion of alignment which is that um there's no doubt like when you align your your actions with your essence you become a bit of a beacon and people you 
people become drawn to you. Mm-hmm. Um, people who would help you build whatever you want to build. People who would buy what you're selling. People who would evangelize on your behalf. But there's another missing piece, you know, because a lot of people would be like, oh yeah, just like you know, get totally aligned and be authentic, and boom, like the world will rally to you. Well, well that's step one. But here's where I think a, a lot of folks go wrong, including me. I banged my head against this wall, and I probably will again. Um, Alignment will bring people into your orbit. It'll turn you into a beacon, and and you radiate. It creates a, a gravitational force. But for you to then turn that into an aligned living, um, you need to be creating something that people value enough to pay you a sustainable living. And very often, what that means is that you need to invest yourself to build a level of craft that people are willing to pay for at that level. That process may take another ten years. Mm. And we're like so instant on these right. days that nobody wants to own that, mm-hmm. you know. So it's just like, like I'm doing. I did the work, man. I did the self inquiry. I'm aligned. You know, like people are coming to me. So it, it segues into mastery. Right. Like when do you achieve? Yeah, some but it's mastery? like nobody's buying stuff, and I can't live this way. And it's because that that's only half the process, you know. You've also yeah the craft. Now you got to devote yourself to aligned craft, mm-hmm. to aligned mastery, to to creating on a level that's not only aligned, but is perceived as creating so much value that people are now willing to exchange value for that on right. a level that lets you live comfortably. And that takes time and nobody wants to wait. Right. Not yeah. nobody. I don't want to use extremes, but most people. Yeah. I was going to jump ahead and ask, you know, where is money in that contribution wedge of the, of the model? Because really none of your guests, all of your guests have radiated success in any of their endeavors. Milton Glazer, Susan Piver, Shambhala mm-hmm. Buddha's teacher, um, on and on and on, Tommy Baylor, so many of the great ones. Uh, but money is just not really a primary driver or topic. It, it, but it has to be part of the equation because they have families yeah. and it's and it's not a. Uh, and many of them have <laughs> suffered mightily along the way too. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 they wouldn't say that. You know, they they would tell you that they're doing work that they're here to do. Yep. Um, and because of that, they're giving themselves the runway to get as good as they need to get. So that um, people, they can actually create output that's valuable enough for people to pay for to live the way they want to live. Mm-hmm. It, it makes the, um, was it Kant who said, um, man can endure um, nearly anyhow if he has an adequate why. Yeah. Um, it's kind of that. Yeah. Yeah, Simon Sinek was a guest. I was there for that interview too. And just here, he, he, he's really big with the start with why, but then he gets into... Um, serve those who are serving others. And largely, I look at this body of work for Good Life Project, and I think that that's what it's become, is that it inspires and provides tools to a community of people like me, Cynthia Morris, or like other people that have been in the program that are out there trying to create the good life for their clients, you know, and helping them remove those restrictions of because money, money is a necessary part to, to live well and give well, as oh, you yeah. say. And I never deny that. I mean, but I live in New York City. I have to support a family. Exactly. So. But, it, but it's also, um, it also can be a restriction in that it, it doesn't create, it creates that hustle versus allowing the space to develop yeah. mastery. Which is why I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years talking people out of quitting their day jobs, or if they've already quit it talking them into staying in their yeah. day jobs. Right. Because we get this mad thing. We're like, oh my God, I, I've got, like, I kind of know, I get it. Now I've done, like, I know myself enough to actually really get what I want to be doing. So, I, and I can't spend another day not doing that. I need to just bang out of here now. Mm-hmm. Right. 
the, the challenge with that is that when you're operating, when you're a little bit further into life, you have responsibilities, bills to pay, maybe people looking to you to provide a sense of security. You know, you you do that and you have a limited financial runway, mm-hmm. right? You're like, ah, I got enough money for six months. So then the quest becomes, I need to get good enough at this in six months to be able to replace the living I just left behind. Yeah, wow, good luck. That's yeah. freaking <clears throat> evil, right? So maybe you can. Maybe it's the type of thing where you can. Maybe you're going to launch an online venture. Maybe there you're actually doing something where you can do that. I mean, there's certainly things that I've done where we've gone from zero to substantial amounts of revenue in a very short period of time. But the year is building right, up to that exactly. mastery. I mean, it took me yeah. like 10 years to learn how to do that Figure before we actually launched that. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, the, the problem is like when you do that, so you quit and now you're like, now as you, when in the early part of that six months, you're like, okay, I'm going to rock out and just do all this great stuff. And then you get three months in and you start to realize this is probably going to take a little bit longer. And then you get four months in and every decision you start to make is based on, will this put money in my bank account before my six months runs out rather than probably the much more reasonable, this is a decent chance it's going to take me two to five years to get to that place. Um, to let me actually figure out how to create the space, using your words, mm-hmm. to get there. So there are plenty of people that I said, look, go back, like, get a day gig again if you've left it. Mm-hmm. Get one that's sort of like fairly straightforward, that's okay, you know, that gives you enough creative bandwidth. Or to one that allows you to side. gather data too. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, use it as a test, you know, to just build what you want to build on someone else's dime. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then give yourself the space actually create run the experiments to, to validate and invalidate the assumptions that you need and at the same time build your level of craft mm-hmm. so that it's at a it's at a level where people will compensate you at a level that will replace the, the income that you're leaving behind and that may take time you know um, it also takes it, I think what's implied in there that you've talked to with so many guests Sakyong Mifam Susan Piper certainly is, is compassion self-compassion that, creates c- create the uh space to give yourself compassion which leads to self-care which is another huge part of your work talk about talk about the impact of you know rituals and habit self-care on these stunning bodies of work that all your guests have created yeah (laughs) it's kind of interesting there's a book that came out called daily rituals which is amazing If, if anybody hasn't read it they should read it and they analyze the the daily patterns the life you know of some of the most most accomplished creatives from scientists to artists to Beethoven's writers, like everyone, right? And, um, and what really surprised me was a huge percentage of those people worked a fairly short number of hours per day, and they spent a lot of time like walking, mm-hmm. moving their bodies, communing with friends and family, going out in nature. These guys had so much more connection and vitality built in and, and practices built into their everyday lives than most people do now by a huge, huge, huge factor. And they created stunning bodies of work working way less than your average person works now. Because it was focused, inspired, it was correct. Right. And because they were out there living in the world and taking such good care of themselves that they had like so much, such a deeper wealth to draw on. I mean, I just saw a study that came out recently that and looked at sleep. You know, showing that if you sleep less than an average of six hours a night, that's it's a functional equivalent of testing point one oh on an alcohol test, meaning which is legally intoxicated. 
you know, cognitive function, creativity, like productivity, everything plummets. Relationships. Um, yet, yeah. you know, sleep is, you know, massively dysfunctional in almost everybody in a major city in New York, if not, you know, most people in, in the United States now. So, uh, but we walk away from that. And, uh, yeah, it's really interesting to sort of look at the creative lives of the most prolific, the acclaimed people from three, four generations ago. Mm-hmm. And how they actually structure their day is radically different than we do. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when we work with people in the program, you ask, you know, when they're unsatisfied with a particular result they're getting in their business, usually you would expect the the teacher or the subject matter expert to say, okay, what tactical things are you doing? What's working? What's not? But usually the questions in Good Life Project start back at what self-care are you doing or not doing? You know, are you meditating? Are you running? Are you creating any space around yourself to do what you're here to do? Yeah, I mean, because there is, like, business is you. You know, people mm-hmm. like, oh, business isn't personal. Not be- hell no. Business is personal. You know, you are the the single, you are the entry level product mm-hmm. for anything that you sell. Right. You got to own that. <laughs> and I think of, you know, people like um, Jada Selner, mm-hmm. uh, Simple Green Smoothie, somebody who just radiates their yeah, product. Yeah, you're in a room with her. You're like, look, I don't know what she's doing or you're what like, she's selling, yeah. but just I want I it. Want it. <laughs> yeah. I want it because yeah. she glows. Kicks the vibe. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, it's fascinating. It's because yeah, certainly in the early days of business, it's about survival and just making it through um, the corridor. Or, um, but later on, it's about thriving. And how can you do that when you're not um, taking care of yourself? Yeah, it's just, it's mission critical, you know? So it's something that you have to exalt, um, which is utterly counterintuitive for for your average person. Well, and I think there's plenty of examples right now of large companies like Zappos is certainly one uh, company I work for called Centro. They, They take phenomenal care of the employees, so thinking that the employees are more likely to take phenomenal care of the customer who takes phenomenal care of the it's uh, of the corporation so it's an upward spiral but most companies aren't capable of seeing that or investing in that which is crazy yeah i mean what's interesting is the world of positive psychology is actually now generating enough research for organizations to take notice you know like uh, barbara fredrickson's work on positivity um shows how positive state of mind um, it's not just good for the, the individual. It's, it's great for the organization because it creates what she calls a broaden and build effect, which allows you to literally see more than you would see if you weren't in that state, solve problems better and faster. Right. So the cool thing is that research is now actually starting to shine <clears throat> a lot of light on the importance of state of mind and, and how that impacts creativity, problem solving, cognitive function, and then mood, morale, you know, like culture, all this stuff. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you 
you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life isn't always perfect, but with Signature Hardware, it is beautiful. So in your in your small team organization for Good Life Project, whereas you started, it was largely you and your wife working on it is like a true passion project. You've looped in other experts to support some certain things. As you were gathering your own data on what works for you to be prolific and creative. I mean, you've cranked out a ton of content in two years. I mean, on top of the books, on top of the launches, on top of the talk show giving. I mean, there's knocking out an interview a week, three camera shoot is no joke with editing and all that stuff. So what was, what's, what are some of the habits that you've kind of relied on through that period? Yeah. I mean, for me, um, my mindfulness practice is the anchor for everything. So I wake up first thing in the morning, I roll out of bed and um, I just sit for about a half an hour now every morning. And uh, it's a very simple, breath-oriented practice. It's not difficult instructions at all, but that sets the tone for the whole day. And um, increasingly, I'm also following that by going, I'm, I'm in Manhattan where I'm, I'm two blocks from Central Park and two blocks from the Hudson River. Right. So I'll go out and I'll either walk in the park or walk along the water because nature is a big reset for me. And then I combine it with movement. So I start my day with mindset, meditation, um, you know, movement, and nature, and sunlight. And that's that's already like a pretty good day. And very often I wake up early, as I know you do. So I'll be home from that at like, you know, 7.30 in the morning, 8 o'clock. It's already a win. Like the day's right. a win. exactly. Yeah. You know, and then I'll hang out with the, with my wife and daughter, you know, get her off to school or camp, depending on the time of year. And then, you know, but what I'm really trying to do now is structure the day so that, um, especially because I'm working on a book right now, is that, you know, 9 to about 1 o'clock, Every day is just book time, completely mm-hmm. uninterrupted. You know, like I'm not checking email, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not doing all this different stuff. I'm just, it's there. And it's funny because sometimes stuff will post on those things and um, people will be like, dude, get back to work. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> they know my commitment. Right. Um, and sometimes it's automated, so <laughs> it's not actually yeah. me. But um, And then in the afternoon, I'll take lunch very often with my wife and we'll talk about both personal stuff and business stuff. She's, she's the, the chief experience officer for, uh, for the venture. And uh, the afternoon is more for sort of like just miscellaneous business stuff, interviews, travel, things like that. And then um, late afternoon kind of varies a lot more. But what I found is that early morning for me is sort of like my most, I'm best at sort of highly focused creative work. And then also very late in the evening, but it doesn't work for me. Mm. Um, Just in terms of my role as wanting to be present as a father and a husband. So... I make shifts to accommodate that because that's that's the heartbeat for me. You know. Well, yeah. there's there's a lot of listeners to your to your work that um, are obsessed with productivity. Like, how do I get more done? How do I fit it all in? Yeah. And what you just described to me is that you make the heavy investment early in the day to take impeccable care of yourself to the best that you can based on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But then the rest of the day kind of flows from there, and somehow the massive amounts of work get done. It's counterintuitive. Well, because most people, I mean, are addicted to uh, meeting makers and yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And also, you know, you fold in digital technology and connectivity, and we are literally. 
I mean, there's a dopamine hit every time, you know, like you put your phone in your hand. There's right. actually a dopamine hit every time you look at your phone now because your brain realizes that as a potential supplier of information where you don't know what the information is going to give and your brain, you literally become addicted. You know, there is, there is a strong chemical and psychological addiction to connectivity. Um, it's which, like when people wake up in the morning and it's uh, it's usually their alarm clock is an app. Right, And exactly. then they grab their phone they're like, what did I miss? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the first thing they do. And then they're chasing the day. They're they're less, yeah. they're more likely to jump into the matrix versus getting out for a walk. Right, then you things. wake up and like from the moment you open your eyes, it's reactive. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, that's a freaking awful way to live your life. Right. You know, it's like to, to to open your eyes, like to start reacting You're surrendering. to other people's demands yeah. for you or other technologies, addictive pulls on you and yield to that until you close your eyes when you go to bed at night. Right. You know, and then like if somebody asks you, well, what'd you do today? And like, I was busy as hell, man. Like, yeah, but what did you do today? Right. Meaningful. And you're like, yeah. uh... I was busy as hell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dr. Sarah Godfrey, one of your most recent guests, she had a lot of great insights, but one of the um, quotes, I forgot who she uh, got it from. She said that uh, y- your inbox or your email inbox is a convenient filing system for other people's agendas. Nah, and that one was just one that. of those. Boom. <laughs> because, you know, how, how often do we want to satisfy people jump into that? Then by the end of the day, you're exhausted, but all you did was live somebody else's script. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's pain. I mean, that is pain personified. So I want to talk to you uh, about some of the guests a little bit because mm-hmm. um, there, there's I, I had to narrow down some of my questions, but the, a couple of the interviews that really stand out for me is is being Pinnacle, um, Milton Glaser, mm-hmm. Eve Branson. Recently, listened to that one yesterday on the plane. Mm-hmm. Two very accomplished, later in life, brilliant people who've done amazing things, but they didn't seem easy to interview at all. Mm-hmm. They seemed, uh, uh, especially Milton. Yeah. So talk to me about what it was like to interview him. Well, it was probably in part because I was a little bit, I'm usually very at ease in conversations and I, I thought was, you seemed as chill as you normally do, but I, I thought that he I was just kind well. of, he, he was like, Oh really? What do you, what do you think? Yeah. He, he was, was kind of kept well, putting yeah, he, it back to you. Exactly. He kept challenging me with almost everything that I said <laughs> and and you know, so it's interesting because on the one hand, like I'm wearing this one hat, I'm like, but I have to appear like I've got my stuff together and it's my show, and I'm like, you know, this certain I'm supposed to be a smart guy, and then I'm like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I'm sitting across the table from Milton freaking Glazer. <laughs> right, right. How can I not just shut up and learn from him? Yeah, you know, like, like so, just it. yeah. If he's asking me a question, there's a reason he's asking me the question. Either like my question is ill formed. Or he wants to explore this topic in a way that I hadn't thought about it. So just shut up and listen to the question and think about what he's saying. You know, so it was it was really challenging mm-hmm. because he did challenge me on a lot of what I asked him. And um, and he inquired, you know, because he's an eternal like like so many. He's an eternal student. He yeah, wants to uh, learn. Absolutely, You know, and he is. Yeah. And it, so he really challenged me. But it was also incredible. I mean, that. I think I've told you this, you know, of everybody that when I've walked out of the conversation and we wrap for the day and I'm sort of digesting later that evening and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if there's one person whose life and whose like path I could step into and be like that, it's probably him. Wow. You know, because just he knew what he was doing. He knew what he wanted to do from the time he was five years old. 
um, that didn't know he meant he knew he wanted to be a you know an iconic graphic designer. He mm-hmm. just knew that he need, he, was, he needed to create. He was an artist, mm-hmm. you know, and he would find he defied defied it. his parents. Yeah, he was yeah, and there was a lot of support for him in different ways. But also, you know, he's a really smart guy, so he could have done anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but he and he built this astonishing career where he constantly was just maniacally pursuing learning and challenging himself mm-hmm. and honoring the artist in himself as the lead. He yeah. always led with that side. So he, like, he built any number of businesses. I, I, iconic designer. He, you know, he designed the most ripped off logo in the history of logos, you know, the I Heart NY logo, mm-hmm. um, which also he, he was never paid for. Um, he designed that for the city oh. of New York. And um, you know, he's designed zillions of other things, iconic posters, famous Dylan poster and so many other things, but he's also designed interiors of supermarkets, you know, like uh, bottles he's designed. And then he so goes, really affected the culture. Oh, yeah. in a massive way. And, and he founded um, New York magazine. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that little thing, that little thing. <laughs> right. So he's, you know, he's somebody who just said, you know, this is an interesting thing for me to, to focus in. I, it doesn't matter if I haven't done it. In fact, He's one of the things that really blew me away is he he really fiercely resists um, the notion of having a style, um, wow. you know. Because and the reason is because he says you know if, if then people come to you because they want like something like a glazer style thing right to be done, but he doesn't want to spend his whole life repeating things within this really narrow style. That's not he's here to learn and to grow and explore, and he constantly wants to push the envelope of his own experience. Well, I think that's, it says a lot about him still working at what age is he now? He's I mean, 85 or 86. Still really prolific, right. but that's that's the longer arc of a career saying, I refuse to be categorized into yeah. one particular style. I'm committing to the craft over the long term. Right. I mean, that's really amazing. And that, would, that meant that certain clients were, would not work with him, mm-hmm. you know, or, or certain clients would have, just have to trust. Look, I, I'm going to come up with something which is really good. You know, it may be in the old style, but it also may be something radically different that nobody's ever seen. You came to me for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's not because I have a style. It's because I see the world in a way that nobody else sees it. And I integrate things and create output in a way that nobody else does. So you're hiring me very much like the way that people went to Ray and Charles Eames. You're hiring the individual in the process, not necessarily the style and the product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and how many how many colleagues has he had in different generations that are out no, tremendous. spreading the knowledge right, the impact that he's had he's also been teaching for 40 years at Cooper Union so wow. it's just tremendous the impact so that I, I had a feeling that was my hunch that was my hypothesis that Milton was probably the top of the pyramid yeah, which for is you. funny because he's also the one who challenged me more than anybody else yeah um, but just went looking at what he's created and the way he's lived his life and built his body of work is just I think it might resonate so powerfully I think it might have been his delivery and his tone too because he is so um professorial <laughs> yeah yeah and accomplished you know yeah. and holds the seat of authority but um but then you have like a, a susan piver who has that same wonder it, like mm. it, i love when susan in in her interview that one really stands out for me just in terms of the whole like the serendipity of her life and her amazing journey but when things come out of her mouth whether she's on oprah's couch or your couch or whatever she's just genuinely surprised like wow that was really cool you know i lived mm-hmm. that and i think that milton had that same thing but yeah. he just articulated differently and what's funny is they're both um very steeped in eastern philosophy mm-hmm. milton spent a lot of time in ashrams when he was younger <laughs> oh right yeah. right i forgot that part uh so if there's one guest out of all of them 
that maybe went in with either some assumptions or maybe didn't um, you know fully appreciate their body of work or didn't you know know enough about it mm-hmm. that maybe influenced you over the course of the interview where you're just like wow not expecting to be so influenced by that person can you think of any of those hmm interesting question um I mean, it's clearly you learned something from everybody. But. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's funny because the um, some of the very earliest ones that we did, um, and it's funny because I look back at those now, and like, oh, I was a total hack, <laughs> and I still think I'm a total hack, but at least I'm a hack plus one in terms of my my quality to generate good conversations. But um, there were some some guys who I really didn't know all that well, um, guys like Dan Ariely or Charles Duhigg, mm. and. Who and Dan was interesting because a lot of people know Dan as a you know brilliant thinker, behavioral economist, psychologist, professor at Duke, award-winning, massive New York Times best-selling author. Um, and but what a lot of people don't know is his backstory, which is that he was when he was seventeen or eighteen years old in Israel, he was mixing oil for a graduation right, ceremony, exploded burned. on him, and it burned seventy or eighty percent of his body. And he spent the next three years living in a burn ward. Mm-hmm. And and his curiosity about placebos and morphine drips <laughs> while being treated in the burn ward was almost kind of what led to his curiosity about people and behavior. And um, so visually, we sat there for an hour, and you know, like he's he's probably around my age actually, um, but his, his body is like covered with you know eighty percent scars, and. Um, it was really interesting because uh, I, I wanted to have a conversation with it, but I wasn't sure, like, how does he feel about talking what about are the, it? Yeah. You know, what are the parameters? What's appropriate? What's not? So those are the things where it's sort of like there's this what's socially acceptable, not where it was interesting for me. Another time was um, I was having a conversation with um, a totally awesome person named uh, Catherine Preston. Mm. Who uh, who stutters? Stutters, right? She was a very early episode. I remember yeah. that the upside of stuttering. And she's lovely and smart and accomplished. And I don't know, maybe halfway through the conversation, I was really struggling as the person who was the interviewer or trying to lead the conversation because I knew that th- I could tell where she wanted to go. I could I knew the words that she wanted to right. say, but I didn't know whether. Uh, it was appropriate for me to finish her sentences for her or whether that would just have been taken as an absolute, like that is just a horrendous thing to do mm-hmm. to somebody who has a stutter. Right. Um, so at some, I'm, I mean, so I started getting in my head and I'm like, stop listening to her because I'm trying to figure out what do I do here? And then I was like, you know what? If I'm having this question in my head, I guarantee you right, the thousands of people who are watching and listening having the exact same question. So I just said to her, I was like, hey, listen, I, I need to just sort of zoom the lens out here for a second and ask you, like, this is what's going on in my head right now as we're talking. This is your life. You've lived this your whole life. So this is, I'm sure I'm not the first person who's raised this with you. How do I respond? Like, what's appropriate? What's acceptable? Right. Um, so there are really interesting moments like that where you have to kind of step out and say, okay, um, let's just all be human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, then and that's really, a big risk in the, in the in the format of traditional TV, which is like sound bites and um, you know tightly edited, polished. Everyone looks great, sounds great, that sort of stuff. To really create that space around people to really fully express and give them the time to do it. I mean, I, I think that that's that was a huge differentiator for your format. You know? Yeah, I think so. And also the fact that what was interesting to me, and this was a big surprise with a lot of conversations, has been that um, the number of people who've been guests who have come back and thanked me. Mm. 
for allowing them to just have a conversation. And it's interesting because we've gotten a number of guests. We're in New York City, so one of the benefits is we can get you know a fair number of big name people. They all pass through here. They eventually. pass through here, so it, it would it would not be unusual for somebody to be on you know a, a major network TV show in the morning, then a new show in like late morning, and then swing by us, you know, right after that. So they're coming off a series of shows where it's three to five minute soundbite segments, which which is fine. Like that's the, the way TV operates. And the publicist hands them bulleted. Right, exactly. This, so, and, and I've been on that side of the interview many times. Mm-hmm. Like I've been on TV where somebody's interviewing me reading from a teleprompter and they're just waiting for me to shut up so they can get to the next thing on teleprompter. And I get that that's the format, so I don't have any beef with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that same guest would come here and like, okay, you know, what's the deal? What do we do? And I'm like, we just talk, man. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just going to have a, a really cool, laid back, casual, unscripted conversation. Like we're two human beings who genuinely are interested. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh. <laughs> and then when it, when it would actually happen, you know, afterwards, they would be like, wow, like that was really unusual. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then I, I've had a number of people who've come back and said that they use their episode they point anyone who wants to understand who they are and what their company is really about and what they're about what a testament are the conversation they had on on good life Mm -hmm. project was really cool um and these are things i never planned for or expected they they probably tell them grab a cup of tea because i go for 47 minutes with jonathan fields (laughs) and we go deep yeah yeah that's cool but it's it's true that humanity comes through but it doesn't come through in those three to five minutes it's it's more entertainment and it's packaged but it gets deeper uh, so what are some of the episodes that, um, however you define success or whatever your metrics might be in terms of either views or shares or mm. people feedback, like what are some of the ones that were kind of surprise successes for you? Yeah. Or So what's funny is that the most viewed episode on YouTube right now by pretty decent margin is uh, Josh Kaufman who wrote a book um, on accelerated learning. And uh, mm-hmm. and it's a fairly short episode for, as far as interviews go because we were filming in Boulder, Colorado. We filmed like five or six people in one day that day, and he was running late, and we had to stay on schedule, so it was absolutely insane. So like we had like twenty minutes or something to do it, and we put it up, and he kind of like blew through it, and that exploded. That's got I don't know like three hundred fifty thousand views on that oh episode, my gosh. Now, something like that. Um, gosh, I would have guessed like Brene Brown, Brene Forleo. Brene is number two behind um, that episode. Brene was was an ex- an exceptional conversation. I had met Brene the year before. Didn't you both actually weep at some point in that episode? It was Probably. pretty emotional. It was, and and we're also both Brene and I. We just kind of aligned really quickly. We just we like each other, and and it was you know we connected about a year before we were both speaking at, at a similar event and then we had lunch together and we just, you know, we just really connected. We're so both Rush fans. We are. So we have that to bond over, but, um, she's so real and she's so smart. She's so funny. And she laughs so, right up into to the point that she gets you crying right. like, or anybody crying. That's how she speaks. That's how she delivers. Yeah. It's so authentic. And, and the thing that moved her where she kind of had to stop and collect herself towards the very end was when they asked her, like, what does it mean to live a good life to you? And she started to kind of look up and off and start to well up and she was like it's the little things man it's it's those small moments you know that we steamroll over in the name of seeking those mm, big moments and right. she started talking about it's picking up my kid at soccer it's this and she started thinking about her kids mm-hmm. and that was the moment where she started to well up and then when i see her do that i'm like mm-hmm. <laughs> keep talking because i can't talk right now everybody across <laughs> the interwebs at the same time um, but it's i mean the beautiful it's it's real you know, mm-hmm. and that's um, 
that's the power of it. I think it, in the end, when you look at the legacy of the project so far, and I know it's going to continually evolve, we'll talk about that in a second, but um, that has to be like one of the primary metrics is how real was this? No. And I think, um, yeah, it's definitely a primary metric um, is how, how real it is, but also um, how I, I've done a lot of things. Um, I've created a lot of media and a lot of experiences and a number of businesses. And um, I have never gotten the volume of emails, tweets, mess, private messages in response to what we're doing with this, doing anything else in my life. Um, and people writing like big personal things mm -hmm. <laughs> about how one particular conversation matters or the whole project, you know. What I, what I found out also is that new people who are new to the tribe tend to binge watch or listen to a massive amount of episodes. Yeah. They'll listen to one. They're just like, okay, let me download like the last 50 and just boom, they'll spend like two weeks like just doing nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's something that, that will sometimes crack open in them just because of the, you know, the, it's like, it's like, you know, Phil Spector's wall of sound. It's mm -hmm. like the wall of humanity. You like at some point you can't just hold steady in the face of that. You've got to surrender to a certain level of vulnerability and openness. Mm -hmm. That's great. So I, I have to ask about the elephant in the room, but mm. what's with these boom mics uh -huh. and headphones? This seems a, this is definitely a different format than how you normally did. When you said I was going to interview, I was thinking like plush yoga studio, mm -hmm. comfy couches, some refreshments, yeah. different vibe. What's going on? So, um, so I, I thought it was appropriate to uh, to film this in a way where visually um, it becomes a segue into the future of the Media for Good Life project. And uh, so we've been filming the video show um, for over two years now, two and a half years. An amazing experience, incredible conversations. And uh, about a year, a little over a year ago, we launched the podcast, the version GLP Radio. Which out of the gate did great. Yeah, gangbusters. Mm -hmm. And um, and a couple things started to happen from that. One is that that started growing um, really rapidly and people were responding to audio. And then we started to learn actually that a lot of people who watch the video actually don't watch the video because so it's longer it. format. Mm -hmm. So they listen to it in the background. And then I started to do something, which was, um, we haven't released any of them. Maybe we released one or two, but I've started to record audio only, uh, episodes. And so we're you know, at my dining room table right now. Mm -hmm. So the beautiful thing is that when we shoot video, because it's high production value, we have to film four or five, um, episodes a day. And because that's what we have to do to cover our costs. And, you know, we consider that and then post-production and all this other stuff. And um, and that was was great because it let us do something extraordinary. But at the same time, there's an interesting dynamic that would happen when you shoot that way, which is that you have the conversation with the guest, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's being said, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that's not being said. Mm -hmm. And there there are two reasons for that. One is because there are cameras there, and people are sensitive to sort of like the whole visual aspect of what's going on. And two is because there are things that people just don't want to say on the record. 
Right. But they want to have the conversation. They really want to talk to you more. Because they're passionate about what right. you guys are talking about. Yeah. So what would happen is then, then in the early days where we don't, weren't stacking quite as intensely, we'd do like two in a day, we'd, we'd, we'd mm-hmm. rap. And then we, like I talked to a person for another 45 minutes an hour, and that this amazing conversation would mm-hmm. unfold. Right? Because the cameras were off and the record button was off. It's like, wow, this is so cool. And I enjoyed it. And that's where I started to develop relationships with the people that I was interviewing too. And then as we really ramped up production, we lost that. And the, you know, a lot of times the next person was waiting in the wings. And so we would wrap. The other person would want to go deeper. Right. I would want to go deeper. But we couldn't. It was like kind of like next. And that's what we have to do to actually sustain the show on that level. So um, and I'm, I'm not in any way angry or upset or jaded about it. It's amazing. I mean, the ability to do what we're doing is just it's, it's awesome. But I was starting to, to miss something. And it was that next level conversation. Simultaneously, I started to just have conversations where it was pure audio, and I noticed something. I noticed that when you remove the cameras, um, A, we don't have to stack up people and and Mm -hmm. do it that way. I can have those conversations after, but there's something else that happened, which is that when it's just me and you and two you know like radio style microphones and a set of headphones where you know we can both hear each other in our ears the conversation gets really intimate really fast mm-hmm. and all those things that very often people would hold back they start to flow into the conversation much more organically yeah they don't get bottled up when you're talking to a friend in the comfort of your own home one-to-one versus this this uptightness of one-to-many yeah you know? and it's like you know come on over we'll grab a cup of coffee and we'll hang out in my living room and we'll, we'll chat so so I became really fascinated with um, the intersection of the growth of the audio side of the media, the way that we're producing, and the way that we could storytell on a very different level and become much more intimate and have much really, really powerful conversations by really focusing on building out a higher quality patio, a patio podcast experience. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of made the decision not too long ago that uh, th- that... I've also feel like I've kind of done what I came here to do with video mm-hmm. that, you know, I wanted to tell amazing stories. I wanted to create a body of work and I wanted to show that anybody with a will could produce a really powerful body of work at a very high level of production. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've, we've done that, you know, so hundred, how many episodes total? There's over 110. I don't even know. With, it's with a, a probably around 120, um, something like that by the time we actually air this. And, um, and we've got now cl- closing in on 20 audio only episodes that we've now um, recorded but haven't been aired yet. Mm-hmm. And we've been saving those because my goal now was to, to move into the second stage, the second wave of the project on the media side. So we started out by really trying to do some powerful things with video. And what I've learned is that we can do even more powerful things with audio, which was counterintuitive to me at first. Um, and in fact, it took somebody who was a former award-winning uh, public radio producer to to really help me get this. Because mm-hmm. I told her early on, she's like, "Well, you know, you know, what do you what are your designs on audio?" And I said, "Well, reach." She's like, eh. "I said, what am I missing?" She's like, "Intimacy." She's like, "Radio wow. is, is a much more intimate medium than video." She said, "But you won't get that intimacy." by doing what you're doing, which is stripping the audio from the video right. and just airing it. You have to lead with audio. She said, you have to create for radio and you have to produce for radio. And that's where we're about to move. 
So the reason we're hanging out here and we've got you know cans on and, and broadcast microphones and we're recording is that um, the the web show, the web show side of the project on the media is about to go on hiatus. And we're going to really move 100% of the energy into producing the radio podcast side and and telling stories on a much more powerful, more intimate, more story-driven level. Mm-hmm. And again, try and do what we did in audio with video would raise the production value so that we get really high quality, um, really exceptionally produced uh, experiences with this. So, so this conversation visually the reason I'm being interviewed and the reason we're sitting here with what's normally sort of my home radio recording studio is because this is the inflection point where we wrap you know the first phase um, which is which is the the web series but the conversations continue on an even more powerful more intimate more story driven and deeper way as we move and turn all of the the media production energy to producing for audio um in a way that I'm so excited to do. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy. Wow. So we've covered, you're writing a book right now. You're moving heavily into audio production, kind of like a new, at a new level. And um, the, the current plan is to continue the immersion trainings and the education side of the Good Life Project. If you had to prioritize those in terms of which ones light you up, I mean, is it, do you refuse to choose or do you? No, it's, it's actually pretty clear to me. Um, the uh, radio. Uh, well, there's there's one thing you haven't mentioned, which actually really lights me up, which is um, I'm also, I'm an artist. So what, what maybe the branding some, and the right, creative. So some people yeah. don't know, but some people actually do know. Is I, I get emailed all the time asking who does all of our design and our right. branding and our webs and all this stuff. Can I like hire the designer? I'm like, nah, not really, because it's me. <laughs> um, and uh, I love doing that. So, um, so a chunk of my energy is going to actually go back into actually embracing that, and rather than kind of pushing it to the side, and um, spending a lot more time building and designing and crafting language and crafting and producing media that's sort of next level stuff. And at the same time, you know, continuing to work with you and our amazing team to to build really powerful educational experiences. And, and we're certainly going to expand that offering in 2015 too. If I had the budget to hire you to paint the back of my jean jacket, uh, <laughs> what would it run? Just like ballpark. You for me, right? I haven't painted so long that you wouldn't actually want me to do anything. Well, it's kind of funny because I'm thinking Journey Escape, like the Escape Pod. Yeah, that's pretty good too. I mean, as we're hanging out here, like one, of, I, I've recommitted to just embracing the maker side and everything mm-hmm. that I do. So we made this out, table. Right, this table. I put up a long blog post about it. You know, it's literally, it's a, it's a trial to concrete table that I made with my hands. I think what people beat their heads on against the wall with over you is like, wh- you know, again, where does he find the time to create this whole thing? Because even moving in New York City is its own major project, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you did that in the middle of multiple launches, preparing for all the WDS stuff. Yeah, it was um, a little bit of madness. <laughs> uh, this production schedule that's relentless. And you're, I call you and you're building a table. I'm like, what? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, and it's, but it's, it's making sure that I stay connected with that maker side, the artist side. That's what allows everything else to happen. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I'm seizing up on like, you know, the other work side, uh, whether it's curriculum design or branding, whatever it may be, or, you know, launch development, it's because I haven't, I've stopped living and I've stopped making oh, and right. I'm just, I'm just 
working. I'm living in the contribution bucket full time and I'm not even living in the parts of the contribution bucket that light me up. Mm -hmm. So I have to do stuff like this to be able to do my best work across everything I do. And it's, um, and it's another theme that came up all, all over the interviews. Jerry Kalana talked yeah. about the integrated life, Mitch Joel with the work-life blend, that you're figuring out a way to probably connect with your family, build something of value for your home that clearly benefits your business too. I mean, that's like an integration point, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also as, um, you know, we're both dads, um, it's, I want to set an example. Mm-hmm. And show that you know you you can do stuff like this, and you you know, you should do stuff like this, and and work really hard to figure out what lights you up, and once you do, find a way to integrate it into what you do, and as well as the people who you're around, you know, find those people, bring them into your orbit, no matter what it takes, and find ways to build something together. Well, it's certainly been a total honor to hang with you and just learn, and uh, you know, appreciate all that you've built. You know, I mean, it's it's truly an impressive body of work. The name of the project is Good Life Project. Mm-hmm. When I offer up the term to you, what comes to mind? What does it mean to you to live a good life? Ah, the big question thrown back at me. <laughs> years and years of exploration. Gotta know. You know, um, for me, I have this whole framework that I've developed, but I can, I can streamline it. And for a lot of years, I was pretty goal-oriented. And, you know, there's this whole storyline that says, you know, you, if you, if you, you've got to know exactly where you're going or, you know, or else you don't know what to do and, and you're never going to get there if you don't know where there is. And, um, and increasingly, I think you should have some sense of where you're going, what the qualities of that place are, but you should be really open to serendipity. And, and increasingly also, cause I think about legacy a lot, you know, I'm, I'm in my late forties and, uh, and I think about like what's what's this all about um and increasingly i think less about legacy as like what is the thing i'm going to leave behind and more about how how am i living every day like how can i construct a day Mm -hmm. every day in a way where if i live that day today and then the next day and then the next day and then the next day all the big picture stuff is going to do exactly what it needs to do you know so if i wake up in the morning and I engage in activities that light me up with people who light me up in the name of people um, deeply connected to serving, that's a good day. And if I do that today and then tomorrow and then the next day and the next month and the next year, that's a good life. Well, it seems to be what you're doing. You know, I think about all those creators in that book, Rituals, you know, and uh, it's pretty much how they stacked it, you know? Yeah. So, wow, where do we go from here? <laughs> well, I guess inviting everybody to, uh, number one, just a massive amount of gratitude. You know, thank you for sitting in today in the role of my the pleasure. interviewer. Um, it's really my honor. Um, and, uh, and And just gratitude to everybody who's been part of this massive, I mean, we have viewers and listeners in over 150 countries right now, or like, I mean, just, it's been tremendous. And, and the amazing thing is that while the video is moving into hiatus, what we're about to do with audio and the level of storytelling and production guests we'll be bringing in is just, it's just going to keep getting better and better. So really just inviting everybody to continue on with us. You know, if you're, if you're watching this, then come on over to iTunes and check it out. You know, subscribe or SoundCloud, whatever it is that you prefer to listen to your audio. 
Um, if you're still watching, you'd still just prefer to be on YouTube. We're, we'll probably continue actually posting just the audio with like a thumbnail mm-hmm. um, on YouTube at least for a while. And uh, and really just looking forward to, you know, the name of this is, is Good Life Project, and the word project is, is deliberate. And, um, you know, this, this Seth Godin is a friend of mine, and, and he launched something called Domino Project a couple of years back and mm-hmm. around publishing. And it was there for a year, and then it wrapped after a year, and people were like, what happened? And he was like, it's a project. It's in the name. <laughs> Which means that you're running experiments and you're evolving. You know, and the beauty of this is that now we get to move into the next stage of the project. Yeah. And we get to run some new experiments, and we get to serve on a different level. And I'm just super excited to be able to do that. It's great. So this has been a candid conversation with Jonathan Fields, creator of Good Life Project. My name is Christopher Carter, and thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.